Stay connected this winter with this unbeatable deal from BreezeLine. Get reliable, fiber-powered internet for just $19.99 per month with all-in pricing for two years. But that's not all. Your first month is on us. This deal gets better with a free modem and installation along with free Wi-Fi your way whole home coverage. Safeguard your network from cyber threats and keep all your devices connected and secured with this amazing offer. Act now. Terms and conditions apply. Offer expires March 3rd, 2024. Learn more at BreezeLine.com. Warning. We're going to be talking about Eternals today. This movie just came out. Have you seen Eternals? If the answer is no, stop right now. What are you doing? You cannot listen to this because we're going to spoil the entire movie, the first credit scene and the second credit scene and lots of other shit. I'm warning you. Hello! My name is Jason Concepcion. Welcome to episode 11 of X-Ray Vision. We're going to count them all the way up and see how far we get. This is the Crooked Podcast where we dive deep into your favorite shows, movies, comics, and pop culture in general. On today's Previously On, we will talk about the Marvel film Eternals, out now in theaters near you. We'll dive into the film with the help of co-host Rosie Knight. I will explore the worlds and work of uh, the celebrated comics creator Jack Kirby. And then we will talk to Abraham Reisman, great comics journalist, and talk about uh, Jack Kirby and uh, creator rights with regards to the comics industry in general. But first, let's recap uh, Marvel's Eternals, which is a film. We're Eternals. We came here 7,000 years ago to protect humans from the deviants. Okay, so I saw the movie for the second time last night, and I took notes on my phone as best I could, uh, trying to do so surreptitiously in a way that would not get me kicked out of the theater for you know, being suspected of videotaping the movie. So bear with me, and I hope that these are right. And also, if you haven't seen the movie yet, obviously probably wait on this. <laughs> because I'm going to spoil a bunch of stuff that happens. Okay. Um, so we open with a title card that uh, tells us about the Eternals and tells us about the Deviants and tells us how those... Two creatures, two species were created by the Celestials, the giant space gods, which you have learned about in uh, movies such as Guardians of the Galaxy and others. Uh, The Celestials created the Deviants uh, to hunt intelligent life, but something went wrong. And so they needed to create the Eternals, who are these like immortal superheroes to basically kill off the deviants. Uh, We opened 5,000 years ago in Mesopotamia. And uh, there are some villagers. They're fishing uh, by the shore. And then all of a sudden, deviant comes out of the water and eats this kid's dad. And he's like, 
son, get the fuck out of here. And just as, a, as the Deviant is about to eat the boy, the Eternals show up and they just start whooping major ass. Present day, we meet Cersei, played by Gemma Chan, and Dane Whitman, played by Kit Harrington. Kit Harrington uh, has to say the name Cersei lovingly multiple times in this movie, and it's pretty funny. Uh, but maybe not consciously funny. Maybe they didn't know that it was actually funny. Anyway, they're teachers. Uh, they're dating. Uh, Cersei teaches some kind of art class. Uh, and there's like this major earthquake across the globe. Across the globe, like a five point something or to six, I would estimate from just like seeing it. And we see that Cersei has the power to change matter into other matter. She turns uh, like a large uh, piece of art, stone art, into just sand and saves a child's life. Later on, uh, while Cersei and Dane Whitman are just kind of like walking around, enjoying the town, a deviant shows up and uh, comes out of the... I would I would guess is the River Thames, but I'm not sure, uh, and attacks. Uh, we meet another Eternal named Sprite, who uh, is played by Leah McHugh. Sprite can apparently uh, create illusions, and uh, with the help of Icarus, played by Richard Madden. Yes, that's right. This movie has uh, both two heirs to the Stark throne, and both of them have to say Cersei numerous times. Uh, Icarus shows up, and he uh, is very powerful, basically like a like an eternal Superman, and with his help, they fight off uh, the Deviant. They then decide, gosh, something is going on here, what with the earthquake that shook the entire globe, that's a clue, plus the Deviants, we thought we had taken care of that, but guess what, they're back we need to contact the other Eternals because apparently uh, after thousands of years of fighting deviants, uh, once that was accomplished, all the Eternals had gone their separate ways. Separate ways. So they go to find Ajak, who is their leader, played by us, the, the wonderful Selma Hayek. They arrive at Ajak's, like, uh, Dorothy farmhouse in the middle of nowhere, and unfortunately Ajak has been killed. They think, right, it's got to be because the Deviants are back. The Deviants killed Ajax. That's what everybody thinks. And everybody's very sad about it. They go around and find other Eternals. Where are the rest of the Eternals? We meet Kingo, played by Kumail Nanjani, uh, the Eternal Kingo. He can shoot uh, beams of energy from his fingers and hands. And he is a Bollywood actor, and he has been uh, undercover as a Bollywood actor uh, playing basically like four generations of a Bollywood actor pretending to be his own great-grandfather, grandfather, father. Let's go to, uh, you know, somewhere in the outback, and there they find Thena and Gilgamesh, played by Angelina Jolie and Don Lee, respectively. They are in some kind of relationship that's a little hard to discern, Clearly a, a warm and loving one, a romantic relationship, a, a very close platonic relationship, unclear. Whatever the case, 
uh, Thena is uh, experiencing some kind of like uh, memory problems and she will go in and out of uh, funks. And then we meet Druig, played by Barry Keoghan. He uh, is like a Professor X. He can take over people's minds, implant, uh, implant thoughts, make people do as he wishes. He's living in the rainforest in, a, you know, what I would describe as the kind of place that, like, Nazis probably went to go hide after World War II. And uh, Druig is running this utopian kind of like farm in the middle of the rainforest. And it's a little troubling the way Druig is just extremely comfortable with taking over people's minds. Later, we find uh, Fastos, played by uh, Brian Tyree Henry, and he's wonderful. And his husband, uh, they live with their child somewhere in the U.S., uh, I think outside of Chicago, and uh, Fastos has the power to create technology, but he doesn't want to do anything anymore. He doesn't want to help anymore because he's got his kid and he's got his husband and they're very much in love and they don't want to do shit anymore. Also, uh, spoiler, Fastos also was instrumental apparently in creating the atomic bomb uh, that was then detonated uh, over Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And so he's just kind of like, you know what? I don't want to do technology stuff anymore. They go back to uh, the Eternals, go back to their ship. uh, And there they find the speedster Makari, played by Lauren Ridloff, who is our first deaf superhero in the MCU. So Makari's just been living on the ship all these years and, like, stealing art and stuff because she she can run extremely fast. Uh, she's just been chilling out. I should add, in a scene that has haunted me ever since I saw this movie, uh, earlier in Baghdad, like, uh, around, I want to say, like, 500 B.C., Makari, again, who is deaf, uh, is communicating using sign language, and she makes the sign for time, which is, she which she signs by tapping her wrist like a wristwatch. Uh, Wristwatches would not be invented for another 2,000 years or something. That has haunted me. Around about the time that Makari uh, makes the extremely anachronistic uh, sign for time, we get the very, very first sex scene on camera in an MCU movie. Of course, we, uh, we understand that Steve Rogers... And uh, Natalia Romanoff fucked many, many, many times uh, off off screen, at least in my head canon in uh, Captain America Winter Soldier. The vibes are very clear. They fucked a lot. Um, But in Baghdad, uh, around 500 B.C., uh, the first on-camera sex scene happens in which Icarus uh, and Cersei just pounded out on the sands in Mesopotamia. Blows that back out. Cersei, uh, played by Gemma Chan, not feeling it at all. No orgasm has been had, so we're still waiting for that pivotal moment in MCU history. Just sex, very, very tame. Later, Cersei learns uh, that... The Celestials have been uh, keeping a, a, a secret from them. Over, They've been, uh, over the years, communicating with a Celestial who's been giving them their missions. It hasn't happened for some time. Ajak usually was the one who would take care of that. But now Cersei is able to do it. And she learns that actually 
Earth, planet Earth, is like an egg for a baby celestial and that intelligent life feeds the celestial in the egg and allows it to grow. And then eventually the celestial hatches from the egg, being planet Earth, killing everything on the planet. And then the celestial goes off and lives its life. Uh, Cersei is like, we can't let this happen because for various reasons, namely that it would kill the billions of people that live on this planet and we should probably not do that. So they go off and they try to figure out a way to stop it. But they find out that uh, Icarus actually wants it to happen. In fact, he was the one that killed Ajax. And now they have to fight him while also fighting the uh, deviants who are evolving into like higher forms of deviants while also stopping the celestial from hatching out of the earth egg. Uh, they do manage to stop this by, uh, by uh, joining together in something called a unimind, which uh, Fastos figures out that they can do if they all kind of like bond together with their energies. They can create this unimind that does something and then uh, Cersei, uh, because of an earlier fight with the Deviants uh, over in Druig's village, she had managed to turn a Deviant like into a tree. She's not sure how. But she thinks, maybe if I do something similar with the Celestial, I can stop the Celestial hatching by like touching it and turning it into something. She does this and she turns it into like a huge rock, like a big, there's just like a Celestial popping part way out of the ocean now uh readers of marvel comics will probably think of uh, the avengers headquarters uh the most recent avengers headquarters which is the the kind of like corpse of a celestial that is half frozen icarus in what can only be described as the most on the nose scene in movie history flies into the sun because he has failed to stop uh, uh, his colleagues, his friends, the Eternals, from stopping uh, stopping the Celestial from hatching. Disgusted with all of this, he goes and flies into the sun. His name is Icarus, and he goes into the sun. Uh, Cersei is able to make Sprite, who is in the form of a child, uh, into a regular person that will now age, uh, and is no longer immortal like the rest of the Eternals. And then we get our credit scenes. Credit scene number one. Dane Whitman is hearing a voice. Uh, he goes to a very, very old-looking case, which has very like old inscriptions on it. And he opens it, and he pulls out a sword, which uh, is the Ebony Blade, which was introduced earlier in the film when we meet Makari on the Eternal ship. And bing, bam, boom, we realize this is Dane Whitman, the uh, Black Knight from Marvel Comics, a member of the Avengers and other teams. Just as he is gazing upon this sword, we hear the voice of Mahershal Ali, who plays Blade. Uh, We're back on the Eternal ship. There is a flash of light. Some figures have teleported onto the ship. It is Pip the Troll, voiced by the very funny Patton Oswalt. And Eros, a.k.a. Star Fox, 
the brother of Thanos from Titan, played by Harry Styles. And that was a thing that happened. Uh, by the way, this kind of, I, I guess, confirms that uh, Thanos is an Eternal. In the comics, Thanos is like an Eternal with like deviant mutations. Uh, Eros slash Star Fox also is, is an Eternal. And I guess this kind of proves that Thanos is a Eternal slash deviant. And that's our movie, folks. Currently, Rotten Tomatoes score 49% critics score uh, and seem, seeming to be trending down. Uh, the audience score is just in as the, the movie has just opened, 80 per, 86% initial audience score. This is the, at this point, lowest rated Marvel movie on Rotten Tomatoes. Let's get a overview of some representative reviews, Mick LaSalle and the SF Chronicle. It takes a special kind of movie anti-magic to make an entire audience indifferent to the potential destruction of Earth and every living thing on it. Eternal manages it. Dana Stevens and Slate. Eternals is as sociologically inconclusive and as picturally beautiful as any movie in the franchise, with scene after scene bathed in the warm light of Zhao's favorite time of day, the pre-dusk golden hour. But it is also one of the weakest Marvel movies I've seen meandering and wan shots using wan in a review um i would add that uh icarus and uh icarus and cersei's love scene also takes place in that uh, pre-dusk golden hour shirley lee in the atlantic in shot after shot Zhao minds a quiet and poignant humanity from her characters um i think this is uh a bottom tier marvel movie not a bad movie, ab- like graded not on the scale of Marvel movies. It's just like a normal, boring movie with some uh, cinematography is beautiful. The fights are pretty good. And Kumail Nanjani is hilarious and really the best uh, part of the movie for me as Kingo. Um, the movie depends a lot on emotional space and emotional plot. Uh, they some really interesting decisions made here to like finally have true romance and you know physical longing we get love triangles we get jealousy but unfortunately with that is a, a really strangely like cold depiction Gemma Chan and Richard Madden just kind of like have no chemistry uh and they are former lovers it's it's better with with Kit Harrington's Dane Whitman, but he's like barely in the movie. Sprite and Icarus kind of Sprite has a crush on Icarus, I guess you could say, um, and that is probably the most like true like emotion and longing that is conveyed on the screen in a real way. Unfortunately, like uh, Sprite is like a child character, which is super weird, although like obviously thousands of years old, but in the physical form of a child. And it could have just used more plot. It's fine. Too many characters is part of the problem too. I think really for me, the sad part of this movie is you get the first real on-screen representation of a a gay character in Fastos, who's uh, married with a, with a wonderful child. You get the, the first, a representation of a hearing disabled character. You have a deaf character in Macari. Uh, and really part of the problem is you just have too many of these characters. Like really interesting moments like with Druig 
in the in the rainforest and Kingo uh, living his life as like a celebrity. Um, but in the end, the movie can't focus on any of them. And the reason why I think I would probably put this below, say, Thor The Dark World or even Iron Man 2 is those movies like understood who the hero of the movie was. Uh, it's unclear like who the central character of this movie is. Theoretically, it is Cersei. But she's like super weirdly inactive throughout the film, doesn't know how she turns the deviant into a tree, never really figures it out, at least in a way that is conveyed to the audience. And then when she beats the Celestial is similarly is like doesn't really know what she did and spends the whole movie basically having like imposter syndrome and not knowing why she was picked to lead the team um, by Ajax. So disappointing in that regard. Post-credit scenes were fun. I could have used more Dane Whitman and I think we'll see it. And I'm interested to see where this goes. That said, the, um, the strength of the MCU like as a structure is that you can brick. Thor, the first Thor movie, not great really. But Thor and then Thor The Dark World, arguably up until now, the worst movie in the entire MCU. And then all of a sudden you get the third movie, Thor Ragnarok, which is, for my money, a top three Marvel movie, maybe the best, uh, depending on what mood I'm in. Uh, so is this like devastating? Is this the end of uh, the MCU? No. They'll bounce back from this. Um, but it's still disappointing. On to the airlock. On May 10th, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. I stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters May 10th. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. When your space has the long-lasting, noticeable scent of Airwick Vibrant Scented Oils, you'll want to invite everyone over. From book club to the fantasy league, even the in-laws. It smells amazing. Airwick Vibrant Scented Oils are infused with two times more natural essential oils versus regular Airwick Scented Oils for our most authentic, nature-inspired fragrance experience. Hmm. Transform your space with scents like white sage and mahogany or lavender and water lily. Now that's a breath of fresh Airwick. Eternals assemble. Bam, 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 On my left, who is that? It's Rosie Knight, the number one Eternals lover. It's me, the on only one. Earth. <laughs> the Eternals bam, lover has logged on. Dun, 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 dun. Rosie, uh, Eternals is out. It's out. We've both seen it several times. It is getting panned. Let's just be honest about it. Oh, it's it's the worst reviewed MCU movie ever. 
worst reviewed MC movie, MCU movie ever, I I would have, uh, truthfully, I would have it uh, near the bottom of my list of MCU movies, if not at the bottom, I, I would need to process it a little more. Not a terrible movie by any means, because I would argue MCU, the MCU has really not made any like truly mm-hmm. awful movies. Um, but you love this movie. Yeah, I love that. So I, bring I, bring me like Druig, in like take over my mind, mind with your you. powers. Okay, so and this make me and everyone else love it. This, Tell us why this is a movie that truly understands the weirdness of Jack Kirby. This is, it is a sprawling, strange, experimental, ambitious movie that mixes the humanity of Jack Kirby with the absolute sci-fi wildness that he's known for. To me, it has a character in Fastos who I think is like a love letter to Jack Kirby, an inventor who's all about the machinery and the mechanics, which is so much yeah. about what we love about Jack Kirby. I love Chloe Zhao. The writer is such an incredible film. And this brings, obviously it is not Chloe Zhao getting to make her own incredible right. art house vision because it's an MCU movie. But the, there is so much humanity. I feel like one of the biggest things that worked for me about this movie is every there's 10 Eternals and 11 new characters if you count Dane. And every single one has a nuanced, interesting relationship with the others, which I've never felt in the Avengers. There's no like Cersei I mean, gets, yeah, there's no... You know, this is here is there are a lot of really, really interesting and good choices that and I would argue that, you know, altogether it didn't make a cohesive whole. That said, yeah, the kind of like emotional spaces that this movie went to, I think, are super interesting. Yeah. The fact that we get love triangles, that we get romantic relationships, we Mm -hmm. get breakups within a team is a thing that we haven't really seen before yes like vision and scarlet witch that's the closest their, i think if you if you like if you like that aspect of wonder vision the grief the forever romance that kind of can go from zombies in what if to kind of the past and the future in wonder vision that aspect of this this is definitely the most romantic mcu movie and as someone who grew up as an avowed romance hater but has as an adult realized i actually love romance that was a big thing for me. I wrote a piece that was like ranking all the ships in Eternal because every Eternal ship is good. Like there are so many, I'm a Dane Whitman, Cersei OTP. Like I love that Avengers run where Black Knight and Cersei are together and yes. they're in the Avengers, the jacket Avengers as we as we like to call them. The Monica Rambeau Avengers. Of that the was badass my, Avengers. That was my introduction to the event. That was my era of the event. Roger Stern. Roger Stern, Monica Rambeau. Is Salvasima, like, yeah. Actually, just on a tangential MCU thing, Nia DaCosta has been talking a lot about how that is, like, an era she's really been looking at for Marvels. So I'm very excited about that. But, yeah, I mm. think Eternals is worth it. I think it's weird. I, I The thing is, I don't... The one thing... I, the one criticism I don't agree with is I don't agree that it's a badly made film. I think that the pacing, the way that it works, it, it works for me. I objectively disagree with the idea that Chloe made a bad film. But I do understand the critiques that people have about it being kind of too weird for them or too dense or too esoteric. And in that way, I just think, you know, there's movies for everyone in the MCU. And this for yeah. me is, is definitely in my rotating top five. I don't know where it is, but I think this is, for me, this is the kind of, after 26 movies, I want to see someone doing something really weird and shooting for something different, whether it's tone. Also, like, there are things in here this is the big thing, I think, if I was trying to sell someone to go and see it. Because this is what matters sell to people. Sell me! Um, you know, Jason, because you're going to see these movies anyway. If you like the MCU, 
and you want to know what's going to happen next and you want to learn about all the cool weird stuff that's probably going to impact us in multiverse of madness how mutants are going to be involved yes how you know thanos might come back this is the movie to see because it seeds so much cool weird comic book stuff and it takes very heavily from the comics maybe more heavily than any other mcu movie not that anyone has read the eternals comics so barely anyone will know but if you do like it's it, it's a lot of volume one and volume two Eternals. Yeah, and also as well, like um, if you that you know there was there's only been like four. Vo- well, there's a fifth volume of Eternals now, but there's only four volumes of Eternals. So something else that's cool about this is if you do like it, you can easily pick up some Eternals and be like, oh, this yeah, is yeah. where it, this is where this comes from, or this is where the emerging Celestial, the dreaming Celestial. This is you know all this kind of weird stuff. Yeah, and the cast as well, I think, is just really good. Like, they blew me up. Barry Keona, who I love anyway. Actually, this is something I wanted to say to you because I was thinking about it. The biggest takeaway I had from this movie, aside from loving it, was they never should have recast Barry Keown in uh, Why the Last Man. He would have been so perfect because is- Druig is, like, that perfect mix of, like, is he terrible? Is he good? But I care about him. And then you get yes. to go on that journey, which is what yeah, it should they, have been they, with they- Yorick. Um, but, you know... On the topic of interesting choices and interesting kind of like spaces and energies to explore, Druig, you know, his power is uh, essentially, you know, he can, he's a mentalist. He can project his will into other people. He can make them do what he wants. Uh, essentially like a Charles Xavier, Jean Grey mm-hmm. type. Uh, and it is unclear. First of all, he has a code. Which makes him something of a great character. He he cares deeply about um, about violence and about suffering. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, his answers to those problems is <laughs> I will just control people's minds and make them not do that. Which is actually quite uh, a Charles Xavier move, actually. If you think about the way Charles, Charles, Charles treats you, <laughs> but that those that's I think but something. That, but that's very interesting. It's interesting. I, I, I wanted to just I, I found myself. You know, uh, when we first go to the jungle and meet him, and he's, uh, I, I find, I found myself just wanting to know more about what he's been up to. That mm-hmm. was a very interesting thing. That was a very interesting moment of the film. Yeah, I think I, that's another thing I can understand where people might not have been digging it so much is there's so many characters that there's probably a couple that you really want to know more about, and this yeah. movie is very much like. I feel like it's peppering them in and they will be in the... Like, at the end of the movie, it says, you know, Eternals will return. That doesn't, to me, signal an Eternals 2. That signals that you will see these characters in the wider MCU playing a part in whatever comes next, which is kind of teased in in the post credit scenes. Um, Let me... So I I gave some of my larger critiques in the the previous segment, but I'll give you um, one of my small critiques that I think is... uh, I think is a thing that Marvel has done well in the past and that is like quietly very important. That is, especially when introducing new characters and you saw this uh, in Marvel's The Avengers, um, any team up movie where all of a sudden you're seeing characters together in combinations that maybe Mm -hmm. you haven't seen before. Um, In the past, Marvel has been really good at using fights to show how powers worked and how powerful the characters are in relations to each other. And I would argue that they didn't do a great job of that this Mm -hmm. time. And because of that, I have no idea how tough 
it was or wasn't to beat Icarus mm-hmm. at the end. Like, how tough really was he? Yeah. He seemed like he is, you know, in terms of strength, is like maybe on par with Gilgamesh. Maybe Gilgamesh could have taken him. Could Thena have taken him, like, one-on-one? Yeah. And, and that, for me, was was a, a quiet detail that mm-hmm. is often overlooked in uh, earlier Marvel films that is kind of like part of the secret sauce about, like, why it's so good. All of their fights are beyond just being like spectacle and, and cool displays of choreography and, uh, and fantastic destruction of entire buildings. <laughs> but it also conveys information about like how strong the Hulk is, yeah. how strong the Hulk is in, in, in relation to Iron Man. Uh, you know, that kind of information is, is actually kind of important and i yeah. feel like they didn't do it great well, this time i think that you that's actually, a nitpick no 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 i think you actually tap into one of the hardest things about adapting the eternals which is in the original eternals comics by jack kirby mm-hmm. they all have the same power set right. and it just changes whoever you so somebody like everyone can shoot like laser beams out of their eyes everybody's super strong everybody's super fast and it just depends on who's using the different skills at a different time so i think that in that way um the movie is like at a place that's harder than necessarily something like Captain America where you know really clearly what his power set is because they basically have to redefine that. And when you have 10 characters, like you say, that can become kind of hard. Like the characters who stand out the most power-wise is Makari, speedster, overpowered, always good. Druig can control people's minds. You know, Don Lee, basically, I mean, uh, Gilgamesh, Basically, one punch man can end a fight one with punch one punch. Has, he's, one, he's one punch man. That's one not his... punch man, with, but with both hands. Exactly. But with two, <laughs> two punch man. And like the thing that I found really interesting, which I guess we can get into later when we talk about theories, is give it, they gave Cersei this very specific power set of transmuting yeah. matter, which occasionally pops up in the comics. She loves to turn people into pigs. That's like a regular thing. I, <laughs> there's like five times she did that throughout the comics. But I feel like that is really and this i agree with you here that this is um if you can't sit here and say this 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 and this is the powers and here's how they right. work then that is definitely something that differs and is less established than say your avengers famous you know the round shot where you get to know yeah. what everyone can do but i i do think i think that the cersei powers are i think the reason those are the most specific is because i think Mm. they are essentially replacing they are going to use her as their molecule man when they move into secret wars is my Ah. guess because i think it's very specific to make her powers i know that when we talked before you were saying you know you felt like that's a character who didn't have like motivations and was kind of in this space of Imposter syndrome for most Imposter of the movie. Yeah, basically, like, why did, uh, you know, why was I chosen to lead? Mm-hmm. I, I don't know if I can do it. How did I turn this deviant to a tree? I actually <laughs> have no idea, etc. Yeah, so I think that in that space, if I was looking at this as a the MCU as a whole, what's an Easter egg, what's important going forwards, I think the most important takeaway with Cersei is her power, which maybe is why to some people she feels like a less defined character, because I think the powers are the most important. And her amount of power that she could turn this, you know, emerging celestial into stone by herself or whatever. That, I think, is the, actually the meant to be the biggest takeaway if we're talking about what the MCU is doing going forward. Um, let's talk a little bit about theories. I think, so, um, there's going to be a lot of attention on the post credit scenes. Mm-hmm. 
uh, we get, as you mentioned, the uh, reveal of Dane Whitman, Black Knight from the comics. One of my favorites. Yeah, the best. Really, really fun character um, that gets you into, you know, a lot of Marvel's British character lore is Mm -hmm. just simply the weirdest shit yeah like, Arthurian Captain weird Merlin weird you know. like and they yeah, had a little like, in the other post credit scene you know the, the at some point in the movie some you know Thena mentions that Arthur always thought she was really attractive so they're definitely leaning into the bringing yes. that Arthurian lore because in the comics the ebony blade was like created by Merlin and the ebony blade is what we see Dane Whitman opening and kind of deciding whether or not he's going to use it at the I end, mean, I of love. The... I, I just love that this sets the stage for a possible like Captain Britain Corps, like all the super yep. weird shit. So that's uh, that's uh, credit scene number one. Credit scene number two, of course, is the reveal of Harry Styles as Eros. And well, uh, now before we get into the, uh, the the particular history of Star Fox, uh, interesting choice there. So Star Fox is the uh, the brother of Thanos. And this seems like it confirms that Thanos is an Eternal, right? So in the comics, so Thanos in is the comics, an he's Eternal. An Eternal and a Deviant. And a Deviant, right? Like an et- yeah. a mutated Eternal. Um, and so it, and that was not clear that that was the case in the MCU. It, now it seems like yeah. that is definitely the case, I'm right? guessing they're going to say he's an Eternal rather than a Deviant because they weren't allowed right. to help anything that wasn't to do with Deviants. And if Thanos was a Deviant, surely they could have helped with the Thanos thing. But anyway, yeah, that is some... I didn't see that coming at all. Eros is Thanos' brother. Uh, Eros slash Star Fox. We will probably hear him called Eros in this because of Nintendo. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah I mean, wonderful yeah. Star Fox and uh, it, video game series on my, Nintendo. My favorite thing about this is like Eros and Thanos were both introduced in the first issue, the, the same issue, which was Iron Man 55 from 1973. Jim Stalin, Mike Friedrich, Mike Esposito, John Costanza. And I just love that because it has nothing to do with anything cosmic. And that's just Jim Stalin. He just used to be, he'd be like, I'm doing Iron Man now. Here's two. Cosmic Brothers. So they yeah. appear in the same first issue. So if you have that first issue, you're a collector. Well done. Because that's a key issue. That's a very, very key issue. And yeah, Thanos' brother, he's like very... What's the polite way to say it? He's, he begin, he's a Lothario. <laughs> no, no, don't say it. Oh, no, no. Lizzie, I mean, don't I mean say before. Don't I mean before. say it politely. Okay, so he begins, be... <laughs> he begins as a Lothario and ends as like a sexual assaulter. Yes. And, which is be, the fact that they introduce him. I still can't believe it. When I, when I heard this rumor, I was like, this is made up. I was like, who wants to get in so, to yeah, the so world Star Fox, of... Star Fox spent a lot of his early years... You know, flying around space, having adventures. He's got like this. Uh, they kind of did it with Harry Styles with this kind of like foxy ear hair, mm-hmm. and he's you know kind of like this dashing, charming guy. Now his powers, you say? What are his powers? Like, okay, he can fly. He, he, he can kind of like mind. Some, right, he has some level of super strength, and crucially, he can essentially like target the the parts of a person's <laughs> brain. Where arousal yeah. lives, and he can, so he can basically make make, hor- make people I can, horny. I, I mean, I that's the only way you can baby, say yeah, is exactly. Like, it that is, and so yeah. uh, I, we should add that this is obviously 
a very troubling power to use on people. Yeah. And one it, and two, the uh, She Hulk. Yeah, the two thousand and five, two thousand five or six. Yeah, actually put him on trial oh, yeah. for sexual assault. But the funniest thing is, like, so in that series, that was one of those good reconsiderations <laughs> where everyone was like, "Wait a minute, this is like creepy. Like, why are you being man- why are you manipulating and seducing people?" So they put him on trial, and then Jennifer She Hulk is actually defending him. But then she realizes he's being using the powers on her to make her like, and she's like. What the heck? And then I think at the end he wasn't. But yeah, basically this yeah. guy is so badly behaved that they literally put him on trial yes. for sexual assault. So, Oh yeah, baby. Do I have your <laughs> consent? Exactly. I'm assuming we're not going to see that element here. I think they've yes. introduced, <laughs> I think they've introduced like a hot young actor who people find attractive, who has like a, a certain amount of kind of like, gender present gender fluidity in the way they present themselves as a pop star in the way that they kind of behave and i think that they'll just you know he started he got introduced by basically saying how hot angelina jolie's thena was so which is true she looks incredible in that movie but like i think that that it's gonna he's gonna be more of like a safely flirtatious guy who probably has a lot of connections with important women throughout the universe who he's had consensual relationships with. Oh, yeah. And, you know, Um, the one thing that we forgot from the first post credit scene is that, so at the end, Dame Whitman's going to pick up this spooky sword that basically, like, possesses you. And the idea of the sword is it's cursed, so the only people who can wield it properly are people who lose themselves to the sword and they become, like, murderous berserkers. So he's looking at the spooky sword and then (laughs) Blade... Oh, a voice comes and he says, like, are you sure you're ready for that, Mr. Whitman? And we thought maybe it was Blade. And then Chloe Zhao, in an interview with fandom, confirmed it was. Thank you, Chloe. Thank you, Chloe. Uh, It was Mahershala Ali as Blade, which is super cool. And I love that they introduced him in London because in the comics, Blade is a character who comes from London. He was born in Soho. He was raised in a brothel. And then he was trained to fight vampires by a cool trumpeter called Jamal Afari. I will say, we forget, (laughs) this doesn't really get mentioned enough. Blade is like 120, 30 Mm -hmm. or something like that. Like he was hanging around... With yeah. Logan. He's like, London in, in like the jazz. In, he was born in like 1900 or something in yeah, London. Like, like in, early, in early 20th century London, British guy mm-hmm. uh, turned into a vampire, which is super cool. I, um, so I think that you're right in the kind of, in the hypothesis you laid out about how Blade uh, connects, will be the kind of like connecting dark Nick Fury, dark Avengers mm-hmm. person. The, the thing that I, initially thought of uh, when I was like, is that Blade? And then if that's Blade, it felt like a reference to the Heroes Reborn Mm storyline, which is, uh, is, you know, very recent storyline, which is about a a world in which uh, reality has been altered. So the Avengers never formed. It never took place. They don't exist. And in their place is the Squadron Supreme. Um, But... Crucially, as always happens with stories like this, as with House of M, there's always one person who remembers what the (laughs) real world is supposed to be like. And in this reality, it is Blade who then goes around contacting, like getting Steve Rogers Mm -hmm. out of the ice and being like, hey, do you remember what the world was like before? And assembling a team to try and put the world back the way it was. Well, that's initially what I thought. And with the multiverse stuff, maybe there's... I think so. Because you know, Maybe there's something like that. I am a true 
believer. Lol. Um, in, <laughs> uh, in, in, uh, in the absolute corporate synergy that Marvel loves to do. And I read a lot of the comics. And one of the things that I truly believe in that's helped me make a lot of theories that I've got right, a lot of theories I've got wrong. But like, they love to seed stuff. So it makes sense yeah. to me, even if this is not necessarily going to be a exact Heroes Reborn story, because we know they like to pick and choose from what they take. It is unlikely that it's a coincidence that they had a story that saw Blade going around and helping heroes come together in a time that they really needed him when there was some kind of multiversal threat. That to me is you're setting up an idea so that people can watch that movie and go, oh, is this like yeah. Heroes Reborn? Not the 90s Heroes Reborn, by the way, guys. Just right. the, not the sexy Captain America boob Heroes Reborn. Now, this is uh, the new, uh, the new. Re the Dark Avengers. I think yes. that I think that you're on to something. I think that we're going to see uh, in a post Avengers world, post Tony Stark, mm -hmm. you know, where heroes may or may not have the actual backing of the U.S. government as, as the Avengers kind of did in this Tony Stark era. I think we're going to see two teams. We're going to yes. see the Blade team, which is either. Dark Avengers or Midnight like the, Suns. Bendis, the Bendis era new Avengers, oh, you know, like yeah, a, yeah. A, a, a new heroes that take up the mantle but don't necessarily have the resources mm -hmm. that like Tony Stark, you know, living like closer to the ground. And then we're going to see um, the Contessa's team, mm -hmm. which is U.S. agent. U.S. Elena. agent Elena, and they're going to be like the Thunderbolts kind of gray yeah. slash bad guy Avengers that are more closely hewed to the U.S. government, which is probably going to be more overtly the bad guys yes. as we go forward. Yeah, yeah, I think you're totally right. And I think that they'll do the same thing that the Thunderbolts comics did originally, where they basically just introduce analogs for each character. So that will right. be the government saying, here's our Captain America, which we all saw how people reacted to with in Falcon and Winter Soldier. Here's our Black Widow. Here's our, you know, whoever else they're going to introduce in, uh, maybe an Ant-Man or something. And 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 then the reality will be that the the Dark Avengers, the New Avengers, the Midnight Suns, whoever, this, uh, this there, there's going to be another team of kind of Blade and Wong are probably putting them together. You know, this team of, right. we might even see multiple teams. I do think that is kind of where we're headed with the multiverse, that you're going to need these kind of different heroes for different universes and, and different spaces. So yeah, I think I think that that's we're definitely going to get to see, and obviously we have like Young Avengers forming already. Young with all Avengers, the, I can I legitimately can't because I mean we're almost there. We're be so romantic. close. Yeah. We're so close. I know the one thing I, I love. I actually they did a Babysitters Club reboot on Netflix. It was amazing. The girl who played Dawn, uh, Social Gomez, she ended up being cast as America Chavez. She's amazing. But that did tip me to the idea that I think they're going to at least have some of them be a lot younger. Because to me, America's like always 20, yeah. 21. But, you know, we have Kate Bishop, who is like a more adult age. So I think you can have, we're going to have Patriot on that team. I think you can, we're hopefully going to get to see some of that romance, some of that fun. Uh, and I just, I can't wait for them. And obviously, you know, uh, Wanda's kids, they can kind yes. of be aged up throughout the... Right, because, you know, they come back from whatever dimension they, that they <laughs> whatever were. Whatever demon know, dimension. In, you know, what other part of Mephisto that, you know, <laughs> realm they were in. And they come back older. Up next, the omnibus.
Welcome to another chapter in the Omnibus where lore, analysis, and understanding come together. Today, let's talk about the career of Jack Kirby, who created much of the mythology on display on the screen in Eternals. The Eternals made their comics debut in Eternals number one, cover dated July 1976. Small aside here, a later retcon places Makari of the Eternals in the story Mercury in the 20th Century, which is written and drawn by Jack Kirby, uh, which appears in 1940's Red Raven number one. So technically speaking, that retcon, if you choose to read it in a certain way, that retcon makes it so the first appearance of the Eternals is actually uh, 1940, but let's leave that aside for now. Eternals number one tells the story of the origin of the Eternals, a race of alien warrior gods, and their endless struggle against their twisted cousins, the Deviants. The issue was written and penciled by the creator of the Eternals, Jack Kirby, and it marked his return to Marvel Comics after a half-decade run at the company's chief competitor, DC Comics. Marvel's nickname for itself is the House of Ideas, and Jack Kirby has provided more of that grand mansion's furnishings than probably anyone besides Stan Lee himself. Um, Certainly when it comes to Marvel's look and feel, the art style, the costuming, everything about the aesthetic appearance of many of the characters that have now become iconic, there's Kirby, Steve Ditko, co-created Spider-Man and Doctor Strange, and Joe Simon, who co-created Captain America with Jack, and that's it. And of those three, Jack Kirby... Absolutely stands alone. Beginning in 1961, when the the Marvel Comics era started in proper fashion, up to about 1964-5, Kirby, in a burst of creativity that is essentially unmatched in American popular culture, created or co-created the Fantastic Four, Galactus, the original X-Men, that's Cyclops, Gene, Iceman, Angel, Beast, plus Professor X, Magneto, and the rest of the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, Thor, Loki, Asgard, all the characters within Asgard, the Rainbow Bridge, Hulk, Doctor Doom, Black Panther, Wakanda, and many, 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 many more. On top of that, Kirby helped create the visual language of superhero comics with effects like the Kirby Crackle, which are masses of dark circles contrasted with lighter shaded spaces uh, used to convey surges of energy. But by the end of the 60s, the long creative partnership with Stanley had frayed beyond repair. And the issue was credit. Uh, It's an issue that in any collaborative endeavor, be it a school project or a song or a movie or an improv team, or a comic book uh, creative team, is it's emotionally fraught, and of course it is financially crucial. It's a Gordian knot that is almost impossible to unwind with any kind of accuracy because of the subjective nature of individual recollections. It's simply impossible to, with any kind of accuracy, unwind who is responsible for what, even in projects with defined roles, like like uh, the like the content created by Marvel Comics, in which Stanley was the writer editor and and Jack was the artist, and and creative work is inherently frustrating anyway. Ideas come from intimate, personal, psychological, and emotional spaces. Rejecting ideas is a necessary part of ideating, uh, but that doesn't make the rejection 
hurt any less for the person whose idea uh, was pitched and then rejected. To make things even stickier, the famous Marvel method, the loose improvisational system by which Marvel generated story over the first several decades of of its existence, gave artists wide latitude to unleash their imaginations. And this, ironically, made the apportioning of credit a kind of Rashomonic exercise in the nature of truth. The method worked like this. The writer and the artist, in this case, Stanley and Jack Kirby, would get together and hammer out a a plot, loose plot, which was usually based on an initial notion of stands, but not necessarily. Jack would then go off and draw the book based not on a script or even an outline, but on his own innate sense of pacing and story. Uh, The panels then would go back to Stan, who would fill in the dialogue balloons and the narration boxes as needed. This method worked extremely well uh, during Marvel's early years. It allowed the maximum of creative freedom for the writer and artist and allowed each party to work quickly and efficiently. Uh, And that's really what it was about. You know, this system, such that it was, was really one of necessity. How do we, Marvel Comics, pump out enough product at scale with the limited creative resources that we have. And it's a great system uh, right up until the point that creators begin to want to benefit from the success that they helped achieve by taking credit for what was created. As the 60s slouched toward the 70s, Stan increasingly became the carnival barker-like face of the company. As the editor and writer of the stories, he naturally was the point person for interviews. And in those interviews, when uh, naturally he was asked about Marvel's, you know, magic formula, Lee invariably started with heaping helpings of, it was mostly me, Stan the Man Lee. A 1966 piece in the New York Herald Tribune is often seen as the fork in the road uh, of the relationship between Stan and Jack. Writer Nat Friedland opens with a scene. Lee giving artist Saul Brodsky directions. It then compares Stan to the actor Rex Harrison, who, by the way, was once nicknamed Sexy Rexy by the Hollywood press because he was so handsome, uh, mentions that director Federico Fellini is a fan. He's my buddy now, Stan says in the piece, and notes that Stan's appearance at Bard University drew a larger audience than President Eisenhower, also known as the guy who beat Adolf Hitler in real life. And it goes on like that for about a dozen paragraphs before ever mentioning another artist at length. I don't plot Spider-Man anymore, Lee is quoted saying in the piece. Steve Ditko, the artist, has been doing the stories. I guess I'll leave him alone until sales start to slip. Since Spidey got so popular, Ditko thinks he's the genius of the world. And this is the kind of passive-aggressive shots that Stanley uh, would often take in interviews. Now, to be fair to him, he was often also very generous in saying, oh, Jack and Steve are so creative and they're amazing artists. Um, but these kind of digs certainly didn't go unnoticed. The article then goes on to describe Jack King Kirby as, quote, a man who created many of the visions of your childhood and mine. Okay, good so far. He is sucking on a huge green cigar, and if you stood next to him on the subway, you would peg him for the assistant foreman in a girdle factory. Uh, quite a contrast from uh, <laughs> from the comparison of Stanley to one of the most handsome actors of the age. Anyway, Mark Evanier, a former assistant of Kirby's, recalls, quote, 
Jack's wife, Roz, read the article early this Sunday morning it came out, woke Jack up to read it. Jack phoned Stan at home to wake him up and complain. Both men later recalled that the collaboration was never the same after that day. End quote. Along with these uh, kind of petty, or not so petty if you're Jack Kirby, injustices, uh, Jack surely must have noticed how the industry treated his contemporaries when they tried to get paid. In 1966, DC Comics froze out Superman co-creator Jerry Siegel after learning the artist planned to contest for uh, the Kryptonians' copyrights. Quote, DC writing veterans such as Gardner Fox, John Broom, Bill Finger, co-creator of Batman, Arnold Drake, and Otto Binder had seen their assignments dry up in what some believed was retaliation for their lobbying for things like better pay and health insurance, writes Jason Sachs in the 1970-79 volume of American Comic Book Chronicles. Finger's example certainly must have raised Kirby's alarm. Quote, Finger had co-created Batman with Bob Kane, but he was always Kane's employee, reads American Comic Book Chronicles. While Kane made millions from Batman, Finger scraped by financially. Kirby naturally wanted to escape that fate. He wanted to profit from the success that he helped build quite naturally, quite fairly. Quote, Jack's plots and designs were on TV shows, his Art was on toys, and he wasn't seeing a nickel from any of it, writes Mark Evanier in his biography of his former boss, Kirby King of Comics. In 1970, after negotiations over a new contract with Marvel stalled, and after two years of secretly preparing to do so, Kirby made the fateful call, informing Stan Lee that he was leaving. Kirby's next stop was Marvel's main competitor, DC Comics. DC trumpeted Kirby's arrival from the mountaintop. The word from high is the great one is coming, blared DC's house ads. A longtime fan of uh, science fiction, Kirby followed his creative moves to the farthest fringes of outer space. Quote, he would occasionally reach back and pick a science fiction paper back up and riff through it to get an idea, Evan Ye says in the 2007 documentary Jack Kirby's Storyteller. That would generate an entire new concept somehow. End quote. Kirby's vision, which found its full expression by 1971, was collectively known as Kirby's Fourth World at DC Comics. His most impactful creation for DC is surely the archvillain new god Darkseid. Darkseid, uh, hailing from the planet Apocalypse, is one of the most powerful beings in existence, and he's driven by a fanatical obsession with the anti-life equation, with which Darkseid hopes to enslave the entire universe. Since 2011's line-wide reboot, The New 52, DC has positioned Darkseid as its universe's primary antagonist. And the character recently made its DC Cinematic Universe debut in Zack Snyder's Justice League, a.k.a. The Snyder Cut. He is DC's answer to the MCU's Thanos, which is an ironic twist as comics fans uh, surely are yelling at me right now. Uh, considering that Thanos was conspicuously modeled after, some might say shamelessly copied from, Darkseid. IGN has Darkseid 6th on its top 100 comic book villains countdown. Jack Kirby done it again. Kirby's psychedelic explosion was in perfect harmony with the pop culture zeitgeist of the late 60s, early 70s. In 1968, Eric Von Daniken's book Chariot of the Gods which posited that human technological development was influenced by visitors from alien worlds, was a surprise bestseller. In spring of that same year, Stanley Kubrick's adaptation of Arthur C. Clarke's 2001 A Space Odyssey melted brains in movie theaters throughout the world. 
one of my friend's moms used to talk about how she like tripped acid uh, watching 2001 A Space Odyssey and that she was never the same, which is not a thing that she should have been telling us. Anyway, in 1969, Kurt Vonnegut's breakthrough time travel anti-war novel The Slaughterhouse Five was published, as was Frank Herbert's sequel to Dune, Dune Messiah. Kirby's work at DC expanded on the visual language of science fiction. It is incredible. It is powerful. It is intricate. And it was met with a thunderous shrug. Kirby's fourth world had only slim connections to DC's ongoing continuity, which was a a point of criticism from fans at the time. It met middling sales and very, you know, respectfully negative reviews, and it was canceled after three years. Fast forward to 1975. At New York's Hotel Commodore, Stanley announces to a rapturous MarvelCon crowd during the Fantastic Four panel that Kirby was returning home. Back at Marvel, Jack had complete creative freedom. He wrote his own stories, he edited them, and of course he did his own pencil work. He also had the leeway to select who inked his artwork, who lettered it, Kirby conspicuously steered clear of the books and the characters that he collaborated on with Lee. He took over Captain America, the character he co-created with Joe Simon. Uh, He did a 10-issue adaptation of 2001 A Space Odyssey. Uh, He did Black Panther, and he launched The Eternals. The Eternals ran for 19 issues from 1976 to 1978, and the series kind of sums up this period of Kirby's career, this kind of second act, this middle act. It is bursting with unbelievable artwork and sci-fi imagery. It contains visionary panels that conveyed heady concepts much better than the pedestrian story and forest of wooden dialogue does. Kirby seemingly eager not to just to throw off uh, any kind of link to Lee, but to prove, in fact, that he was better than Stan Lee, just lays in the words like like fucking bricks. Icarus posing as Ike Harris <laughs> in Eternals number one, and apparently a, a human tourist who somehow just ends up tagging along with an archaeologist and his daughter uh, who are exploring the Nazca lines in Peru, you know, just kind of like by chance is like, hey, I'm going to tag along with you. And the, and the, archaeologist is like, yeah, sure, that's not weird at all. Come. Uh, Ike, seemingly by accident, leads the archaeologist and his daughter to a chamber filled with a bunch of alien shit and staring at a display screen showing uh, some area of outer space. Ike exclaims, quote, there they roam. There they live in this great reflector which the gods left when they last departed, the devoted Inca people kept watch for their next arrival, but the gods never returned, and the Incas vanished from history. Keep going, Ike, says the archaeologist. Tell us more, but first, tell us who you really are. You're not really one of us, are you, says the archaeologist's daughter. And the narration box reads, Ike Harris seems to project the silent power of the god chamber itself. Both Margot and her father realize that he's somehow part of the awesome truths unfolding here. Spare us nothing, says the archaeologist. We've got to know. Begin with your name. It's not Ike Harris, is it? Not exactly. This is the kind of writing that is everywhere in the Eternals. And it's not good. And that's even 
judging on the scale of comic book writing at the time, uh, it's very stilted, awkward, and not great. The cover of uh, Eternals number two, which introduces the Celestials, reads, quote, more fantastic than chariots of the gods. Now, we don't know whether Kirby actually read Danikin's very, very weird book or whether he watched the 1970 pseudo-documentary film adaptation of Chariot of the Gods. But it's clear the book had a profound impact on the Eternals, as one would expect Jack's art in Eternals is a tour de force. All of the kind of trademark Kirby stuff is there. The dark light contrast, the power bomb splash pages, the characters and the vehicles that seem to burst out of the page. Uh, the story, though, is, as we mentioned above, is just basically a massive exposition dump and so high concept that you basically need an oxygen tank to kind of like make any sense out of it. And the characters display none of the kind of grounded feet of clay traits that are invariably part of the best Marvel stories. This is this is the thing that made Marvel such a revolutionary pop culture force in comics at the time. You know, DC, it's an, it's an old critique, but it's one that holds true. Uh, DC's characters are all gods, you know, and, and aliens, whereas Marvel's characters are you know, human beings with human problems. Even the gods like Thor has to turn into a human being and he ends up having human problems and dating issues and things of the like. And that's all the best Marvel stories are like that. None of that is here in the Eternals. And the critical response was poor and the sales were poor. Within Marvel, shockingly, Kirby's peers even mocked him. Uh, you know, here they are following in the path that he laid out and this kind of like new generation of comics creator was, you know, snickering that Kirby had lost it. He was out of step with what was going on. Quote, the editorial staff up at Marvel had no respect for what Kirby was doing. Uh, Jim Starlin says in an interview in Comic Book Artist Collection, all these editors had things on the walls making fun of Jack's books. They'd cut out things saying stupidest comic of the year. It's brutal stuff. Additionally, Kirby's work on Captain America and Black Panther ignored uh, the canon that had been established by the creators that preceded Kirby, um, which was a thing that annoyed comics fans and is still a critique that you'll read from comics fans today if if they feel that once a new creative team takes over a book, there are invariably fans who go, this isn't what the character was previously. This is not what we established as the characters. It's always a, a critique, and it was a particularly trenchant one uh, for Kirby. By 1977, Archie Goodwin, Marvel's then editor-in-chief, tried to convince Kirby um, that he needed a dialogue punch-up writer, you know, someone to help him make this stuff sing a little more. Uh, and Kirby said no. Captain America 214, cover dated October 77, is is usually mentioned as the last Captain America that Kirby did. Uh, a few months later in January, uh, The Eternals was canceled. And in 1978, fed up once again with life at Marvel Comics, Kirby decamped for the fatter paychecks and lighter workload in animation, accepting a position at Hanna-Barbera. Though the 1970s were a tough decade for Jack King Kirby, he ended the era with one of the more interesting footnotes in comics history. 42 years ago this month, Iranian revolutionaries stormed the United States Embassy in Tehran, seizing diplomats and various U.S. citizens who were inside the buildings. Uh, unbeknownst to the uh, burgeoning revolutionary movement, another group of Americans were hiding nearby in the Canadian embassy. Uh, you 
may have seen the film Argo, which dramatizes these events. A CIA team using the cover of a film crew working on a movie adaptation of the Hugo Award-winning science fiction novel Lord of Light managed to enter Iran and exfiltrate the Americans from the Canadian embassy using the cover of uh, scouting locations for said film. The artist contracted by film producer Barry Geller to create the costumes and designs for Lord of Light won Jack Kirby. Up next, The Hive Mind. On May 10th, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. I stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters May 10th. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Welcome to The Hive Mind, where we dive deeper into a specific topic with the help of a guest panelist. Today, X-Ray Vision is pleased to welcome journalist and author Abraham Riesman, whose book, True Believer, The Rise and Fall of Stan Lee, uh, chronicles the life of the iconic Stan Lee, the spokesman, essentially, for Marvel Comics for many years, released in February 2021. This book is available wherever you get books. Abraham, welcome to the show. It's great to be here. Thank you so much. Um, so... The Eternals were created by Jack Kirby. Uh, the comic was uh, drawn, written, edited by Jack Kirby. Jack Kirby was able to uh, pick the letterer, the colorist, the inker on the on this. And this was, you know, part of the deal that he forged after coming back from uh, from leaving Marvel for DC Comics, the uh, their Marvel's main competitor. What were the issues that that? that Jack was dealing with at the time. Um, like career it, issues that, or his weird political beliefs? <laughs> Both I of mean, which played into I, what was going on with the Eternals. About, let's talk about, let's talk about his, his career issues as a creator in comics, you know, as a happy to do that. So the thumbnail you know, version of a very complicated sure. fractal story is in the superhero comic book industry. There has never been a culture of creator ownership right or of creator unionization and collective bargaining. Creators, as in the writers and artists, and, you know, inkers, although that's kind of a dying industry because of digitization, um, and colorists, all of these people, they work as independent contractors. They're not staffers. They don't get insurance. They don't have any job security. They're paid a pittance. And this has been true throughout pretty much the entire history of comics. It was built on a, a very bad foundation. So flash forward to the 60s, you have Jack Kirby, this writer-artist, operating um, at Marvel, and he's already famous in the comics industry, the nascent, still somewhat, like, teenage comics industry, I guess. It was invented in the 30s. He'd already had a great deal of success. He was a writer, like I say, a writer and an artist, which is crucial, because Stan was just a writer. Stan did not know how to draw. I mean, he could draw a little yeah. doodle a little bit. Right. But um, Jack, therefore, was sort of the... by really by any reasonable estimation, this shouldn't be a controversial point. Jack was the main creative engine of, of early Marvel. I just, I want to emphasize that like, 
these were weird guys with weird ideas and none got weirder than Jack and that really produced some great work, but also it produced The Eternals, which is not a good comic. It's beautiful, but like as a comic, it it's not an interesting story. I don't know, I think so. Let's be fair to Jack, it's pretty impenetrable yeah. and with stilted, super weird dialogue, uh, you know, for whatever the relationship between Jack and Stan was – it's clear that what Stan yeah. added to it was a certain kind of uh, textual dialogue, mm-hmm. script writing polish that Jack just uh, didn't have. Let's talk about um, the issue of credit and the issue of uh, uh, creator you know, creators creators trying to benefit from the success yeah. of their creations within comics. Now, this is a this is a fraught space no kidding. in any kind of creative space, whether you're writing, whatever. But in comics, it's particularly as a fringe industry for most of its life um, in which the big money only came in very recently uh, at a time when creators uh, basically had no leverage. It's a space where uh, unioniz- we're only just now seeing the unionization uh, kind of momentum that is sweeping a lot of other industries happening yeah. in comics with the uh, recent unionization yeah, last of Image week. Comics. Was it last week? Yeah. yeah, last it week. Was, it, was, it was last week, which is in a way ironic because Image itself was uh, you know created by disaffected creators who were looking to, to more adequately benefit yeah. from the things. Yeah, and, and so yeah, go ahead. So, t- tell, me, tell me a little bit about these kind of like frustrated efforts over the years for creators uh, within this industry trying to somehow, uh, you know, make money off the things that they had created. Yeah, it's it's an eternal struggle. You go back in the history of comics. Jeremy Dauber is just putting out a book called American Comics, A History, which most of its stuff I already know, but it's an excellent, like, introductory text for people who don't know the history of American comics. And you should know the history of American comics because it ended up being very consequential. And you get all these little granular stories about people being, like, again, from the very beginning, from dawn of comics and dawn of superhero comics with Superman, you have creators getting exploited. Well, I think you've hit on something that's important, which is whether it's songwriting, you know, like the film industry, popular music, uh, uh, writing for magazines, whatever, any creative space, there is a lot of exploitation of creators that was happening. And in that sense, comics was really no different. It was no different. But it's just that it's just that there's billions of dollars. in Yes. It yes. And also, but it's, it's not just that it's no different. It's worse in some ways. The number one reason being work for hire. Like, right. it's insane. The Work for hire and lack of unionization. Those are the two things. Um, you know, you talk about screenwriting, and Lord knows screenwriters are very much an abused class in a lot of ways. I am not. Please, I'm not diminishing that. At least there's a WGA. Comics, right. comics right. doesn't have, right. you have no shot at getting unionized in comics. Now there is this, or previously you had no shot in getting unionized in comics. Now we have, just in the past few days, this initial effort on the behalf of staffers, which means not creators. These are people who work at, on staff, at right. Image. So not the pencilers, not the writers. Not yet. That this would is, be, a, right. hopefully, 
you know, that might be something that we see in the future. Um, but right now, it's but it's a very important start because the comics industry has basically no experience with any kind of union, whether it's for, you know, editorial staffers or the people creating the stuff. And I don't know where it's going to go, but I'm watching it with great interest because, Same. yeah, there have been these attempts in the past. I mean, no, most notably, Neil Adams, this legendary right, writer, a, artist. A, a, ACBA. Yeah, ACBA, he started the ACBA, which, which was the... Well, he, he didn't... Dick Giordano and Stan Lee created the Academy of Comic Book Arts and Sciences in 1969, and Stan's original idea, it was a classic Stan take on it, right. was, this is a we want to have an awards show. Yeah. We want to have yeah, an awards yeah. show. That was it. He wanted to have a society so they could have the Oscars for comics every year. And he wanted to be the president of the organization, which is crazy because... As it was getting formulated, like, it became clear that, like, if the bosses are the head of the organization, then, like, well, the point was Neil Adams decided he wanted to run as well, and Stan was like, we should run together. And Neil said, but you're not, like, a worker. Right. You know, like, the point here is supposed right. to be— your management. Yeah. Your management. What I would like this to be is an actual, like, coalition of people, which was how it was getting pitched. It's just that right. Stan in his head knew all he wanted was, was the award show ceremony. So— at one of the first meetings, not an awards show, but one of the first meetings of the ACBA, according to Stan, Neil gets up and starts, or in, in Stan's telling of it, he Neil gets up and starts talking about how creators are being abused and we should form a union. And Stan was furious and was like, that's not what this is for. Like, that's not why we're doing this. And sure enough, there are a bunch of other instances. I mean, just a few years later, you have uh, when Work for Hire starts to be formalized in in national law, with this Copyright Act of 1976 that comes into effect in 1978, you all of a sudden have all these companies scrambling to like come up with paperwork where people are retroactively signing away all of their rights and then, you know, signing away any future rights. And Neil Adams writes this, uh, takes the contract that you were supposed to sign, paints on it. I can't remember the exact phrase. But it was just a few words. It was like, do not sign this. You'll be signing your life away. Meeting. Address you know, time. And it was all at Adams' studio. All these comics creators meet at the studio and they're like fired up. And it's a lot of like, we're going to go all the way on this one. We're taking these screw, you know, these screw jobs down. And then all that had to happen was, well, Stan did nothing for one thing. He just stood off on the sidelines. And then Jim Shooter, the EIC, informed everyone that if you were to... A, a Titanic, not? a Titanic figure who is also extremely divisive yes. was once uh, burned in effigy by his own workers. Employees, and, yeah, no, Jim's a complicated an unloved guy. character who is also very important in the evolution of the comic. Of uh, the comic and and a yeah. lot of other things. Um, yeah, but. I don't even remember where I was going with all of this, but it's. It, I feel like I can go down any tangent when I talk but, about all this. But uh, well, I, I we should. I, I I should say that the thing that was really interesting to me about the ACBA and why why it failed clearly as a unionization effort is that there was no even amongst you know like a, a militant guy like Adams who was who really wanted to push for this these kind of protections. There was not a broad agreement on. Who would be covered by this? Who would be allowed? Do we let do we let the colorists in? Yeah, are the inkers in on this too? Who was in on this? And there was there was no agreement on that. Mm -hmm. And where I hope we go with uh, you know with this current movement now is if we start drawing lines, it feels like we lose. 
right? Uh, we, you've I, I agree, man. The bigger the bargaining in. unit. I mean, I don't know. I'm right. not a union expert. I, I, but. I, I, same here. But it feels like, you know, the way it failed in the past was they tried to draw a line and said, okay, these people are not creators and these people are. And you turn you people against everybody. each other and yeah. then all of a sudden it's nothing. Yeah, I mean, my hope is that it would be a broad tent. I mean, I was part of the unionization drive at New York Magazine when I was still on yeah. staff there. I didn't lead it. I'm not going to take more credit than I deserve, but I, I did the secret networking to go talk to people and get them on board and get them in touch with the reps, went to a bunch of meetings and, you know, it's a real problem trying to figure out who gets covered in the bargaining unit and the companies that you're trying to unionize will do everything they can to try to confuse people about who can count for the bargaining unit just to keep some people from thinking, oh, well, you know, keep them thinking uh, this doesn't apply to me. But yeah, with comics, it's really hard for a lot of reasons, as is true of any industry that is built on freelance labor that is not conducted in a centralized place. It's extremely difficult to get these people, comics creators, to stop fighting with each other for these few slots. Um, And... I don't have a I don't have a good solution to that. I'm just glad to see that somebody's even bothering to try. Um, and I will be following it very closely. I, I'm 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 working on trying to get some reporting done on it, but I'm like swamped with my Vince McMahon book. You want to talk about labor rights problems? Like, wrestling oh, wow. makes comics look like a socialist utopia. <laughs> uh, Abe, thank you so much for joining us. I've you know I've read your stuff for years. Big fan. Where can we uh, Where can we uh, get more of of whatever you're writing, whatever you're working on next. Uh, go to abrahamreisman.com, your one-stop shop for all things Abraham Reisman. It's I before E, but if you misspell it with E-I, I have that domain registered too, and it'll redirect you. Uh, if you want to follow me on Twitter, that's where I spend most of my day, and that is uh, at Abraham Joseph. Abe, thank you so much. Thank you. Up next, Endgame. <laughs> We're in the end game now, baby. It is inevitable. And today we're playing another round of Assembly Required in which Rosie and I will be randomly assigned a mission. Uh, and then we have to assemble our character, our team to accomplish that mission. Today, uh, we are going to be picking uh, characters from the Eternals. And our producers have prepared the mission for us. What is the mission, Christopher? The mission this week is pick your favorite Eternal for the best possible hinge match. A match on Hinge. A match on Hinge. Hinge, the dating platform that uses your Facebook network to match you with people wow. who they hope uh, can uh, can uh, foster a love match. Uh, this has been a free promotion for Hinge. They <laughs> are not a sponsor of this podcast. I don't uh, have Facebook, which is why I don't know what Hinge is. I, but... don't, have, I don't have it either. Well but, done to us. I know who I would but, pick. I know people. I know people who have had uh, some success on Hinge, and so we are going to use it now. Rosie, would you like to go first? Who I would like is to go your first. is is the ideal Eternal to Hinge match with? It's Gilgamesh. Not only Ooh. is Don Lee Don Lee is handsome, strong, iconic, hundred plus movie Korean action star icon, but Gilgamesh he cooks pies. He yeah, has he a cute, great pie. delightful. Has a cute, delightful little apron that he wears. I want to see the fan art of that so much with like the blushing cheeks and the apron <laughs> and the pie. He makes delicious food. He makes his own mead. He makes it out of his spit, but sure, maybe you're into that. Uh, I think Gilgamesh is the one. I love him. Uh, R.I.P. Gilgamesh. <laughs> Man, I got to say, so that's a great pick. And obviously, 
the Eternals are not uh, equally quality hinge matches for various reasons. Gilgamesh is great. Uh, you know, Kingo mm-hmm. is good. Funny. Uh, Druig, obs- uh, uh, Druig, scary. Like, I don't know that I would <laughs> want to go on a date with him. Only if you're Makari. That's right, Makari, Makari, great. Sprite, obvious problems there. She's a child. Don't do it. Let's she's a child? There. She's a child. Uh, yes, I know. And anybody out there is like, yeah, but she's actually like 7,000. You just stop it. Nope. Stop it right now. I she's did not include child. her in my shipping lineup because she is a child. <laughs> no, stop it. Cena, she's I fine. Is, is working through some mental health issues and I want to make, and, and so I think it could be Rocky. Uh, I like it. You're going for consent there. You're like, she, I want to make yeah. sure that we're all on the up and up. Cersei would be fine. Ajax deceased um, <laughs> and was keeping a lot of secrets from everybody. So I don't know if we want to go there. I am going to say, gosh. Now, let me ask you this. If I pick Fastos, does that mean I've broken up a marriage? No, no. This is a, this is a hypothetical because I would not break up Gilgamesh and Thena. So this is a hypothetical if the Eternals were single. I think Fastos is a good choice. Okay, I'm going to pick Fastos because number one, monogamy. Like, mm-hmm. if you're on Hinge, you're looking. You're not looking for something quick. You're looking for something lasting. Fastos, I think, showed us through his, through his actions in this movie that he's looking for something real. He's got a beautiful family and a and a beautiful relationship with his husband. He did uh, build the uh, the atom bomb. I don't that know. Was did he? Used, that was, I'm like, did he or did he, he just? Seemed, he I, seemed pretty broken. Up I feel about like he it, just. Rosie. I feel like he just like this, he helped he humans se- with technology and knew that humans are dumb. Seemed, so if he didn't help them, it would have been they wouldn't have been able well, to create it. Uh, he said, well, I, I would argue it this way. One, he seemed very broken up about he it. He was and very two, upset. He was actually like at ground zero <laughs> of <Hiroshima>. Like he was there. <laughs> he was in the ruins of Hiroshima. Okay, so you, on Hinge, you want to match with the guy who split the atom. That's your open time is your, is your vibe. He feels bad about it. Again, I it was a long time ago. He does he's have a, a different He definitely has the most healthy relationship in the MCU that we've seen so far. So, you know, it's safe that even with the war crimes. (laughs) So, yes, mass murderer, arguably, but... uh, Who isn't in the MCU? Who who isn't isn't? a mass murderer? But, you know, like, again, Tony Stark trafficked weapons for years. Gave Uh, literal... Was was friends, was very close friends with Ulysses Claw for reasons that are probably best not explored. He gave a child weapons. Who is a wonderful guy. Love Fastos. Fastos. Well done, Tim. That's it for the end game. Let us know who you think won this week's game. Hit us at hashtag XRV Endgame. Well, listen, Rosie, as the number one Eternals lover in the world, That's it me. was delightful to bathe in the warmth of your love for this movie. <laughs> wow. Thank you for, uh, for letting us into uh, your perspective on the movie, whether people agree with it or not. It was useful. And it was always a pleasure. Where can we find you next? Thank you for having me. If you want to read more about my Eternals, I've reviewed Eternals for Nerdist. I've written many, many Eternals theories, a lot of what we touched on here. Hit up Nerdist.com. Yeah, that's it. If you want to read a spooky comic, I know it's kind of we're over spooky season now. I wrote a graphic novel called The Haunted High Tops with this amazing artist called Fran Bueno. Uh, That's out now. So there's just a ton of cool stuff. But yeah, if you if you like this conversation, you want to know more about these theories, definitely check out Nerdist because that's where all my pieces are, baby. And there's like 10 of them already and the movie just came out. Bump, 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 b
Dun, 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 Rosie Knight. Big thanks to Rosie Knight and Abe Reisman for joining us on another episode of X-Ray Vision. Please join us again every Wednesday for your weekly dose of The Deepest Dives. If you want to learn more about the stuff that we talk about in each episode, uh, to find out the particular comics that we talk about, references, etc., check out the show notes on our website. You can find a full list of last week's Comics Corner picks on the X-Ray page of Crooked Media's website. And don't forget, please, please, don't make me use my druid powers on you. Five stars only. If it's not five stars, it's no stars. Five star reviews only. Thank you very much. X-Ray Vision is a Crooked Media production. The show is produced by Chris Lord and Saul Rubin. The show is executive produced by myself and Sandy Gerard. Caroline Reston and Carlton Gillespie are our consulting producers, and our editing and sound design is by Vasilis Fotopoulos. Thank you to Brian Vasquez for our theme. See you next time.